The following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. So let's turn our Bibles to Isaiah 19, and uh, we'll have another uh, scripture reading. And then after that, um, I think we're just going to go right to Jansen to give him the balance of the time. And uh, the young people, if you want to go out now, that's fine, because you've had one uh, scripture chapter already, Uh, so we'll spare you another one. So you are free to go, Connor. All right, Isaiah 19, this is a proclamation, this time against Egypt. We have been going through the, uh, the ones against Syria and Israel and Ethiopia and Moab and all of them Assyria. So here we are with Egypt. The burden against Egypt. Behold, the Lord rides on a swift cloud and will come into Egypt. The idols of Egypt will totter at His presence and the heart of Egypt will melt in its midst. I will set Egyptians against Egyptians. Everyone will fight against his brother and everyone against his neighbor. City against city. Kingdom against kingdom. The spirit of Egypt will fall in its midst. I will destroy their counsel and they will consult the idols and the charmers, the mediums and the sorcerers. And the Egyptians I will give into the hand of a cruel master and a fierce king will rule over them, says the Lord, the Lord of hosts. The waters will fail from the sea and the river will be wasted and dried up. The rivers will turn foul. The brooks of defense will be emptied and dried up. The reeds and rushes will wither. The papyrus reeds by the river, by the mouth of the river, and everything sown by the river will wither, be driven away, and be no more. Pause for a second. Isn't it interesting that in large segments of the nation of Egypt, it is very much dependent on the Nile River, isn't it? If the floods don't come, if the silt doesn't come, if the water isn't there, then there's just not going to be growth and crops. And God is talking here about a real failure of that water system for the nation. The fishermen also, verse 8 says, will mourn. And all those who will lament who cast hooks into the river, and they will languish who spread nets on the waters. Moreover, those who work in fine flax and those who weave fine fabric will be ashamed, and its foundations will be broken. All who make wages will be troubled of soul. Surely the princes of Zoan are fools. Pharaoh's wise counselors give foolish counsel. How do you say to Pharaoh, I am the son of the wise, the son of ancient kings? Where are they? Where are your wise men? Let them tell you now and let them know what the Lord of hosts has purposed against Egypt. The princes of Zoan have become fools. The princes of Naf are deceived. They have also deluded Egypt, those who are the mainstay of its tribes. I'll just comment here also that these folks are going to the mediums and the sorcerers and the idols and the charmers. Those things cannot tell them the future. Yeah, it's utter foolishness for them to think that. Verse 14, the Lord has mingled a perverse spirit in her midst and they have caused Egypt to err in all her work as a drunken man staggers in his vomit. Neither will there be any work for Egypt which the head or tail, palm branch or bulrush may do. In that day, Egypt will be like women and will be afraid and fear because of the waving of the hand of the Lord of hosts which he waves over it. And the land of Judah will be a terror to Egypt. Everyone who makes mention of it will be afraid in himself because of the counsel of the Lord of hosts, which he has determined against it. In that day, five cities 
in the land of Egypt will speak the language of Canaan and swear by the Lord of hosts. One will be called the city of destruction. In that day there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar to the Lord in its border. And it will be for a sign and for a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt where they will cry to the Lord because of the oppressors. And He will send them a Savior and a mighty one and He will deliver them. Then the Lord will be known to Egypt and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day and will make sacrifice and offering. Yes, they will make a vow to the Lord and perform it. And the Lord will strike Egypt. He will strike and heal it. They will return to the Lord and He will be entreated by them and heal them. And that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. And the Assyrian will come into Egypt and the Egyptian into Assyria. And the Egyptians will serve with the Assyrians. And that day Israel will be one of three with Egypt and Assyria. A blessing in the midst of the land. Whom the Lord of hosts shall bless. Saying, Blessed is Egypt, Egypt my people. And Assyria the work of my hands. And Israel my inheritance. Wow, that's a shocking turnaround, isn't it? Egypt, Assyria, and Israel, all amongst the people of God. Well, those will be the days in that great future kingdom, the kingdom of Christ. So, we look forward to that. All right, Jansen, we invite you to come forward here and take the balance of the time. Look forward to the message tonight. Good evening. It's good to be in the house of the Lord, worshiping and singing. And uh, this evening, as Pastor has already alluded to, we're going to continue our study uh, on the topic of the means of assurance of salvation. This is our third part, and perhaps uh, our last, uh, one of three. And so um, I wanted to just review for a moment where we've gone in this subject matter, what we've talked about, and uh, then where we're going this evening. And uh, to give you a definition of, of assurance... Uh, you can think about it in this way. D.A. Carson defines assurance as the Christian's confidence that he or she is in a right standing with God. That is, if we could say, the definition of assurance. It's that personal confidence that you are in a right relationship with God, meaning you are a saved individual. You have placed your faith in Christ alone, and you know that you are one of his children. That is a confidence that a person will have when they know that they have made that profession of faith. Now, of course, as we said before, there are moments where that confidence is shaken. That confidence may be shaken in your life by various, for various reasons which we've spoken about before. And uncertainty about one's relationship with God may arise at that time. And whatever that personal reason may be for such feelings of uncertainty, we do know this, though, that the Christian does not need to remain in that state of uncertainty or doubt. How do we know that? Well, according to what 1 John chapter 5, verse 13 says, let me read that to you here. If you want to turn your Bible, you're welcome to do that as well. 1 John chapter 5. Give me a moment to turn there. In verse 13, he says this, These things, that is, everything up to this point in his letter in 1 John, he says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, 
So he's speaking to believers, seemingly. That's how he perceives them to be. And he says this, that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. So John believes here that a believer can have full assurance because he writes and says, I write these things for that purpose so that you know, so you understand, so you have the confidence that you need to, to have peace in your life, that you are a child of God. Furthermore, in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, Turn there for and read that to you there. Second Peter chapter 1, in verse 10, Peter writes this, Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so Peter's, can I say, command... His imperative here is to make your election sure. Make sure your salvation. How do you do this? Well, we can go back to 1 John if we want to and say, evaluate yourself based on what John has written and see whether or not you can have full assurance. In that sense, personally speaking, we know you can have full assurance, but test yourself, examine yourself to see if there's even any reason to have assurance in your life against what tests John presents there. And we'll get there in a moment. I don't want to get ahead of myself here too much, but just to foreshadow what's to come. So we know we can have full assurance. Peter believed that. In fact, he commands us to work towards that measure. And 1 John is written so that we can know that we have salvation, that we are saved individuals. Whereas doubt uh, can arise because of perhaps things in our lives which cause us to be shaken in our assurance. Opposite to that, full assurance produces feelings of peace and hope and joy and fellowship with the Father. That's what assurance does. That's the results. That's the effects of assurance. It produces peace and joy and fellowship with the Father, unlike doubt and uncertainty, which cause fear and anxiousness until we resolve that kind of situation. As we've noted previously in our study of the means of assurance of salvation, there are many, unfortunately, Christians and churches out there that have a false understanding about what the means of assurance are, what the biblical means of assurance are. They've misunderstood the well from which we draw assurance. Assurance does not biblically arise from mere feelings, kind of an emotional sense. So I feel like I'm a Christian, so I'm a Christian. Feelings wax and wane over time, and so those are not a good grounds for any means of assurance. Assurance also doesn't arise simply from a date written in the front of a Bible that says I was saved on such and such a day. Again, I don't, I don't, uh, I'm not condemning that fact that maybe you have a date in mind, that's fine, but that is not your soul, that should not be your means of assurance to look back on and say, well, the reason I know I'm saved is because I have a date in my Bible. Assurance doesn't biblically arise from a baptism. 
Baptism is not a means of assurance. It's, it's a, an act of obedience, identifying you with Christ, but that does not, should not be your means of assurance or anything else of that similar nature. Perhaps ritualism or attendance, mere attendance of church or the fact that you grew up in a Christian home. I know we all know this very well, but unfortunately, uh, I want to perhaps uh, uh, put your antennas up to the fact that people do believe this kind of thing. That uh, assurance can be based on feelings or dates or baptism or any other kind of ritualistic thing, traditional thing of attendance of church or other things we've mentioned in the past. And the Bible does not teach the believer that this is how we should draw assurance based on these kind of experiences. Rather, the Bible delineates two means of assurance that I want to speak about with you this evening. And that, are, and that is these two things. Biblical assurance, personal assurance, arises from A, the believer's eager acceptance of God's word as the truth. Call this illumination. Uh, the men in our Bible study on Saturdays, we've been talking, well, we talked about this yesterday, we did, and also a time before that. So A, it arises from the believer's eager acceptance of God's word as the truth. Let me just pose this question to you, although I will do it later on. Do you accept God's word as the truth? Do you eagerly embrace it as the truth by which you'll live by? That's the question we're asking here, to know whether or not you can have assurance of your salvation. And two, number two, Not only does personal assurance arise from this acceptance of God's word as the truth, but also from a life that is presently persevering in sound doctrine and good works. Fruit. Fruit of salvation. Fruit of your faith. Both illumination, that is that first means of assurance, and perhaps we can say sanctification, that second one, if you want to kind of draw out theological terms to use are ministries of the Holy Spirit. Someone that has eagerly accepted God's word as the truth is evidencing that he has experienced the Holy Spirit's ministry in his life. And just as importantly, someone that believes sound doctrine and is producing fruit of his faith in his life is evidencing that they are being sanctified by the Spirit. So just like that first question, I... I'll pose this, this, this second one to you. Is there evidence in your life that you have sound doctrine, that you are believing in sound doctrine, and that you are producing good works, producing that which is born of the Spirit? So let's, let's consider these two means of assurance this evening. First, by looking at the evidence of illumination in our lives, the evidence of an eager acceptance of God's word as the truth, this being the first means of assurance. Now, of course, in order to understand this, we need to understand what is illumination. Well, I've delineated that somewhat, but uh, I'll use the words of, of another theologian, Daniel Fuller, who explains the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit by stating that the Holy Spirit's role In biblical interpretation, track with me just for a moment. I know there's a little bit of depth here. But in biblical interpretation does not consist in giving the interpreter cognition of what the Bible is saying, 
Rather, the Holy Spirit's role is to change the heart of the interpreter. So what he's saying here is that what illumination, he's, he's, he's describing the effects of illumination. A person who has, who has experienced the Spirit's illuminating work is, is undergoing a transformation of the heart and mind in relationship to God's word. So that he looks at, the, he looks at God's word and he says, I believe that. And I'm going to live like I believe that. That's the volitional aspect of it. He's accepting it. He's embracing it. And it changes his heart, not just his mind. That's important, the knowledge, the mental acuity of what is true. But it also then goes down a foot or so. And it changes the heart and how you live, the will. You can see then how these two means of of assurance kind of intertwine. There's a eager acceptance of it and, then, and, an, and, an, and an embrace of it that then changes how you live. It changes how you think, sound doctrine, and it changes how you live, good works. Now, let me be clear, whether a believer fully comprehends or even is able or even has been introduced to every doctrine of the scripture, he may not, he may not always comprehend the full truth of everything. It may take time to understand every single doctrine and be even introduced to a doctrine, but that does not give us reason to doubt that he's a believer. It just takes time. That's the life of a Christian. It's an ever-progressing, growing in the knowledge of God's word and then, and then eagerly accepting it and living according to it. However, illumination does grant the capacity to truly grasp and accept, and accept the truth of God. So he may not be introduced to every single doctrine, but he has the ability to grasp it if he does the work to understand it. If he digs into the text and read it, he can understand it. We, uh, if you think of James chapter 2, verse 19, in that verse... James talks about the fact that even the demons believe and shudder. But there's a difference here between the response of the demons and the response of the believer. A, 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 a demon can perhaps understand the fact of, of, of uh, God's plan, so to speak. He knows that uh, Christ is, God, is the Savior, that he is God. And, and those very facts, the facts cause them to shudder. That knowledge of who Christ is and God's plan causes them to shudder. But they don't believe in him as the Savior personally. So the the argument that I'm making here is that there's a difference between just mental acuity of God's word and embracing God's word. Someone that eagerly embraces God's word allows it to transform their life. It's not just mental acuity. Like, I know what's true. And I'll talk that way, but I'm going to behave differently. Well, that's evidence that they are not eagerly embracing God's word as the truth. They know about God's word, but they aren't eagerly embracing it. Just like the demons believe and shudder, but they're never going to live by God's word to live in the truth. They cannot be redeemed in that sense to live by God's word. Fuller also goes on to explain 
the difference by stating that apart from regeneration, men do not welcome the reasonableness of teaching of God's word. 1 Corinthians speaks of this. Unbelievers, the unregenerate, cannot understand God's word. They cannot embrace it because they they have not been regenerated. They have not experienced the illuminating work of the Spirit, and therefore they do not comprehend it. They don't accept it as even being reasonable. Whereas the believer accepts this, accepts God's word as being reasonable, and he yearns to know it more and delight in it. For those whom God has called to salvation, the Spirit, can I say, has turned the light bulb on. Beforehand, he was living in darkness, unable to comprehend and embrace the truth. But then the believer who has been regenerated has had the light bulb turned on to God's word so that he understands that it is the truth. And then he progressively grows in his understanding of it and and he continues to embrace it and to live by it. As Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, he says, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it is, really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Paul is describing the kind of response that the Thessalonians had to the word of God. It wasn't, it wasn't meant just mere mental acuity, like they, they heard it and they thought, that's nice, those are good facts. No, they, they accepted it. They embraced it not just as men's words, but as the word of God. So much so that, is, as, that if you continue to read through 1 Thessalonians, Paul would allude to all the kind of things that the word of God was doing in them, transforming them to become more like Christ and his character in the kind of testimony that those believers had with others in the surrounding area. Look with me at another verse this evening here. Hebrews chapter 11. You're welcome to look there. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13. You're probably quite familiar with this chapter, Hebrews chapter 11. Sometimes called the Hall of Faith, in which uh, God-fearing men and women of Scripture are referenced to in, in a description of the kind of faith that they had. And in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 13 there's a summation of this 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 description of all of these men and women. And the author writes here these all died in faith. That is all the ones all those mentioned previously like <clears throat> Abraham, Noah, and Enoch, Sarah. All of these all of these men and women, Isaac, Jacob, these all died in faith, verse 13 says, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers 
and pilgrims on the earth. And that, my friends, my brothers and sisters in Christ, is the kind of response a believer has to God's word. These men and women understood that God had promised them certain things. And even though they didn't see the full fruition of all of them in their lifetime, they believed in faith. And it says in the the verses, they were assured of these things. They were assured that they would come come to fruition because God said they would. And so similarly, likewise, the promises which God has given to us, we should embrace. Be assured that they will come to fruition. If God has promised to keep us, to preserve us, like we talked about last time, for salvation and and, and into eternity, then we believe it. We embrace it because God has said that it's true. And so I ask you this question as as we've spoken about just a moment ago. Do you embrace God's promises as the truth? Do you embrace the word of God as the truth like these men and women of the faith? If so, then you can have confidence in your salvation that is a means of assurance i believe it i accept it i embrace it okay that's evidence that i am saved i've been changed yeah my brother is alluding to one example of embracing god's word is in romans chapter eight turn with me there we'll do a little bit of an exercise or a case study Romans chapter 8, here in chapter 8, there's one example, we could just use one example here of the kind of, the kind of truths that we are to accept and that we are embracing that is evidence of a changed life. In Romans chapter 8, verse 15, Let me start back in verse 12. Paul writes this, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. So if you are led by the Spirit, that is, if you are indwelled by the Spirit and you are walking in the Spirit, you are a child of God. You are a son of God. Verse 15, for you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear. That's not the life, the character, the the identity of a believer. Rather, verse 15, 15 says, but you received the spirit of adoption. That is one of the one of many characteristics of a believer. They are adopted sons of God. And so when a believer reads this, you, I, looking at this, you ought to ask yourself this question. Do I believe this one promise that I am an adopted child of God? Do I have reason to believe I am adopted child of God? 
Look back with me at verse 15. It says, But you receive the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. And then look at verse 16. It says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, verse 17, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Sometimes uh, it's easier to put things in the negative kind of uh, example. And so let me pose this question, rhetorical as it is, to you. Would an unbeliever be able to cry out, Abba, Father? Hmm. Brother is alluding to the fact that he wouldn't want to. And that's exactly right. The the spirit of an unbeliever, that is the person, that soul of the person, his spirit, could not and would not want to testify of his his or her own adoption. It would not be natural to him. It would not even cross his mind to do that. Rather, or in contrast, the spirit that has been regenerated in a person by the Holy Spirit, has been divinely activated. His, he has been transformed from, from darkness into light. His, the light bulb has been turned on, divinely activated. He's been made alive and aware of his sonship so that he, he does cry out, Abba, Father. And that's the difference between the unregenerate and the regenerate. The unregenerate would have no desire, no want to cry out, Abba, Father, at all. No inkling, no personal relationship, no sonship, no adoption. Whereas the believer has been made alive and aware of his sonship with God, and therefore he does cry out in faith, in belief, embracing the fact that he is God's son. And so he goes to God on that basis, on that ground, says, Father, Abba, Father. And this evidence of an eager acceptance of these truths is in turn a means to assure the believer of his salvation because it is a work that only the Spirit of God can perform and only performs in those who have genuinely believed. So let me ask you this question one more time before we go on to the second means of assurance. Like this promise of sonship and other promises that God's word entails and and teaches, do you eagerly accept those promises as true? Do you eagerly accept that you are a, a child of God, a son of God? Have you embraced it as your own? Perhaps there is a small delineation between the two. Again, one could just be mere, I I believe that God's word says that, mental facts, acuity. But do you embrace it as your own? Do you, in, in your soul, in your very inward being, believe that you are a child of God? Do you believe that what God has said is true, not for me, for you? If you can confidently say yes, 
then you are evidencing the Spirit's work of illumination, as we've spoken about. And your confidence that you are saved should be bolstered. That you should be, you should be bolstered by the fact that you do embrace those things, that you do believe you are an adopted child of God or whatever other example or ministry that we could allude to of the Spirit. So first, we've looked at the first means of assurance, which is the evidence of illumination. Are you eagerly embracing the Word of God as the truth? For example, adoption, the believer's adoption. The second means of, of assurance is this, the evidence of sanctification in your life. Sanctification is the Spirit's ministry of conforming you and I more and more into the likeness of Christ's character. A believer who does not evidence Christ's character has, can I say, no good reason to be confident, to be confident in his salvation. Based on the apostles' strict warnings in the New Testament against false teaching, carnal living, apostasy, it is clear that the Bible teaches that those who are called by God to salvation will persevere, be sanctified by that truth. They will persevere in their faith and produce fruit. This means that they will ever increasingly grow in sound doctrine and godliness. That's what perseverance means. Perseverance means that you, you, you continue in, you persist in sound doctrine and, and good works, fruit of your salvation. Now, perseverance or sanctification as they kind of intertwine does not mean that the believer never faces doubt or reaches a point of perfection in his life. Let me be careful to say that. We're not talking about moral perfectionism as if the only way you can be assured of your salvation is if you always live the perfect life. You never sin or things like that. No, that's not what we're saying. We're saying that there should be, there is a never-increasing progress. There may be dips and valleys, but overall, as you grow and as you walk in your Christian life, sanctification isn't a downward spiral. No, it's an ever-increasing upward climb. Pressing on, yes. Just as the internal witness of the Holy Spirit, as we've alluded to just before in Romans chapter 8, verses 15 and 16, is an ongoing ministry of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is at work in the believer producing fruit that demonstrates genuine faith. If the objective basis for our assurance includes uh, the promises of God, which we spoke about last time, like eternal security, then we could say, it could be said that the subjective ground is the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, which includes his sanctifying work. That is to say, the proof of conversion is the fruit that, is, that it bears. Not the number 
or necessary character or duration of our experiences or the stages by which they unfold, but rather an ever-increasing progression of sanctifying work in our lives. Just as... uh, Well, let me say this. When, when you're walking in the faith, as James has alluded to in his book, faith is not just some stagnant kind of thing. Faith is something that affects us, our whole being. It's not just the mind, not just the emotion. It's the will. It's the desire, the volition to walk according to our faith. Let's uh, consider two kind of areas of sanctification that I've already alluded to. First, that is, a genuine believer believes and grows in sound doctrine. So we're talking about the evidence of sanctification in the life of the believer being a means of assurance. And under that, point A, one aspect of the Spirit's sanctifying work is that a believer will continue in and grow in sound doctrine. Now, let me uh, make you aware of the fact that there are theologians who will argue and, and still do that doctrinal accuracy should not be used as a, as a means to assure a believer of his salvation. And they use, actually, James chapter 2, verse 19, which we just, I just shared with you a moment ago, to, to make their argument, saying that since anyone can confess to believe what is right, uh, but not be true profess- or possessors of that truth, then we should not use doctrinal accuracy as a means of assurance. Because they're saying, well, even the demons believe. They believe in the right things about Christ, but, but what, they're, what they're leaving out is the aspect that sound doctrine does still matter. Because they may believe that Jesus is the Son of God, but do they believe that he is the Savior who died and has the capability to, to free you from your sin and transform your inward being? The answer to that rhetorical question is no. <laughs> they cannot believe that. They will not believe it, the demons, that is. However, as we just said, To say that it is not necessary, that is, sound doctrine, is contradictory to John's first epistle, which we'll look at in just a moment here. I know it sounds absurd, but, you know, there are essential, or to say that there isn't, you know, essential points of doctrine that we need to believe in, that's absurd. We have to believe in Christ as the Son of God, right? His divinity, his deity. That's essential to saving faith, isn't it? Otherwise, his substitutionary atonement, his death on the cross, has no value. If he's not the perfect Son of Man, the perfect God-Man, 
We have to believe that Christ's work on the cross is finished, that it's complete, that it's sufficient. That's sound doctrine to believe that, is it not? Whereas others who believe that, well, yeah, I believe that Christ's finished work on the cross is is needed or necessary, but I also believe that my good works will also help me on my way to salvation. Well, that's not sound doctrine. And so we need to be careful and clear to say that sound doctrine does matter in our faith. As we just said a moment ago, the New Testament is filled by the apostles' writings of condemning of false teachers in false doctrine and in all of those kinds of things, apostasy of the faith. And it was, it's clear from their writing that sound doctrine did matter and still does to this day. Therefore, the importance of this means of assurance ought not to be undermined. As the Bible clearly implies that it is an area in which a believer should test himself to assure himself of his salvation. All for a bit of historical fact, the Puritans believed that an evidence of God's grace was demonstrated in a faith that was based on right doctrine. I think that's important to consider. How did our forefathers, how did those before us, believers before us, think about this, this topic, the subject matter of sound doctrine? Was it important to them? Yes. So why is it any less important to us today, or should it be any less important? No. However, let me say this about the Puritans as well, and this is where we're going next. They believed that to intellectually understand the promises of God was not enough evidence to confidently say that he was a believer. So, to put that into the terms in which we're using this evening, to believe merely just on sound doctrine is not enough. That's, that's only one, one tentacle of this, of this thing we're creating here, this means of assurance. He must, he must also show evidence of God's grace at work in his life. Fruit. So I need to believe in sound doctrine, but I also need to be producing fruit as well. They go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. So a genuine believer believes and grows in sound doctrine, but secondly, a genuine believer produces fruit. Throughout the first epistle of John, there are various tests that are there to increase the confidence of the believers to whom he is writing. We read that in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. And so I, wanna, I want us to spend the remainder, just the few moments left that we have there in 1 John. And so I, I would encourage you to turn there in your, in your copies of God's word and follow along as we, we stay in this epistle for the remainder of our time. There are various tests, of, as I just said, that John uses here to increase our confidence that we are saved. And the purpose for which John writes these things is not to cast doubt on believers of their salvation. We know this because of what verse 13 says. He says, I write to you who are believers so that you can have all the more assurance, have all the more confidence. So John writes these things not to cast doubt into their lives, but to assure them of their eternal inheritance assure them of their salvation, to bolster their confidence that they are in a right relationship with God. 
Now, let me say this. There is a sense in which doubt may arise after reading through these tests. You may read them and say, this doesn't match up with my life. I'm examining myself. I'm reading this. I'm taking these tests, so to speak, as John as John writes them, and I don't see consistency with what John is saying a genuine believer acts like or believes in. So, to be clear, there is a sense in which doubt may arise after reading this. And I pray that if that is true for us or for any person, that then they would respond in genuine faith and say and confess in their heart that, Lord, I, I thought I believed, but I've recognized that I wasn't exercising genuine faith. Maybe I was putting trust in myself or in, in my, solely in my good works or solely in the fact that uh, I've always attended church or I've, or I've been baptized or whatever other reason we mentioned earlier that could be a false reason for assurance. We're not going to look at all the tests this evening, but I do want to look at a few tests that John writes to help the believers understand whether or not they are producing fruit. Look with me first at 1 John chapter 6 verse excuse me 1 John chapter 1 verse 6. There he writes, if we say that we have fellowship with him, so I confess this, and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Here's where these two kind of sound doctrine and good works stand in contrast. He's saying, if you say one thing, sound doctrine, I say that I believe, well, that's, that's the right wording, but my life doesn't match it. What is John saying you're doing? You're lying. And you're actually still in darkness, not in the light. But, verse 7 says, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. Throughout Scripture, light is used as a metaphor for truth. To walk in darkness is the antithesis of following Christ. All unsaved people walk in darkness, or can I say, are currently, presently walking in darkness. Whereas Christians have been delivered in the light. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 4, Paul explains to believers that they are not in darkness because they are children of God. That means that all true believers are children of light and walk in light. They don't confess one thing and walk differently. True possessors of salvation both confess that they are children of God and they walk as children of God. They confess to be in the light. They walk in the light. Since Christ's blood was shed for every sin, it continues to cover every sin that a believer commits after salvation. And we see this in verses 7 through 9 of 1 John 1. So we must still understand the fact, as I said earlier, that a true believer will still commit sin. And that does not mean that he's not in the light that is a child of God. What it does mean is that he has a responsibility to address that sin 
confess it and change, repent, and walk and continue to walk in the spirit and walk in the light as he is called to do. A second test that uh, John presents is not only the fact that a true believer walks in the light, but also a true believer confesses their sin, what we've already alluded to. Let me look at verse 8 of First John chapter 1. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Verse 1 of chapter 2, my little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, who? Jesus Christ, the righteous. So a true believer who is producing fruit is one that is walking in the light and also confessing their sin. To say that you are producing fruit means that you are actively or consistently confessing sin in your life. You are addressing sin. You don't leave it, leave it aside. You don't sweep it under the rug. You address it. You confess it. A true believer is aware of and admits to the condition of his heart, which is sinful by nature. Having his eyes open to the truth, he then responds and confesses that sin. A true believer is grieved by his sin and desires forgiveness. And in turn, Christ is faithful and God is faithful to his promise to forgive him of that sin. Furthermore, uh, John MacArthur states in correlation to these verses that his faithfulness, that is to forgive us from our sins, reemphasizes the truth John had just stated in verse 7, that God will secure their eternal glory by continuing to cleanse believers from all their sin. He is faithful to his promise and always does what is righteous. I know this is kind of a side uh, point here, but are you, are you thankful for that? Allow that to sink in for a moment, that you have an advocate even even when you're in sin, you have an advocate who will who will go before the Father and, and plead on your behalf and he will forgive you. What a rich blessing that is, is it not? So a true believer confesses their sin. That's that's evidence of fruit, of sanctifying fruit. He addresses his sin, he confesses it. One more example or one more test that we'll look at this evening is that a true believer keeps his commandments. He keeps God's word. Look at 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. 1 John chapter 2, verse 3. John writes, Now by this we know that we know him. If we keep his commandments... He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. 
It could be argued that the clearest test of righteousness comes in these verses. Here the writer sets forth the basic premise that one's assurance of knowing and abiding in God is either strengthened or possibly eradicated by his obedience or lack thereof. This is a clear test. It's one way or the other. You can't, can't really reinterpret here what John is saying. It's, it's clear. It's clear cut. It's either you're walking in his commandments, evidencing that you really know him, or you're not. Which one is it? An important theological point to grasp here is that knowing God is used in this text more than in an intellectual manner. Like we've spoken about just earlier, it's, not, it's more than just, I know about God. John's being clear here that knowing God is more than just intellectual mental acuity because he's connected the idea of knowing God with obedience. If you know God, you obey him. Finally, let me say this as we're out of time this evening, having looked at these three different kind of tests that John has presented. Are you walking in the light? Are you confessing your sin? Are you following in his commandments? Any of these things, and also that the first means of assurance, which we spoke about, which is the believer's eager acceptance of the truth and the spirit sanctifying work, any of these things cannot be dependent on their own they are interdependent they are contingent upon one another it's not as if you can leave one to the side and say well i have this and i'll find enough assurance in this no all of them are interdependent all of them are contingent upon one another you can't just take and grab and leave others aside so let me close with this thought this evening as we wrap our time up in this study. Each and every element of these means are essential. Without faith, works is dead. And without works, faith is dead. And without the eager acceptance of God's word as the truth, neither the so-called faith or works are genuine. Can I be that clear and that pointed by saying that? Each means of assurance is critical to providing any measure of confidence to those who are seeking to bolster their assurance of salvation. Having considered the biblical means of assurance, the believer must understand that any assurance rightly arises from the Spirit's work in his life. He is dependent upon the Spirit's ministry. He would not be eagerly accepting the word of God as the truth without the Spirit. He would not be being sanctified by the Spirit either if he were not indwelt by the Spirit. Now, not every promise of God has been examined in our study here or all the works of the Spirit described or even all the tests that John writes in 1 John spoken about. But from what we've learned, I hope that we are able to bolster our confidence in our own salvation. Do you know that you are saved? And what are you basing that assurance on?
Are they the biblical means? Or are they some kind of other manufactured, if I can use that word, manufactured means? God's word has told us clearly how to obtain that assurance. And we must not ignore it or substitute it for any other means. Let's close in a word of prayer this evening. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time, Lord. Uh, We thank you that we have your word. We thank you that you have provided for us such clear and evident means of assurance. Lord, we pray, I pray that each one of us would examine ourselves as Peter has commanded us to do. And as John has said in his first epistle, that we, having examined ourselves, would have full assurance of our inheritance. Lord, may we not just examine ourselves on a kind of a once and done kind of experience either, but Lord, may we continually come before you asking with sincerity, asking ourselves these questions, do I eagerly embrace God's word as the truth? And do I have evidence of the Spirit's sanctifying work? Do I believe in the gospel of Christ Jesus and all that pertains to the gospel of salvation? And am I evidencing the fruit of the Spirit? Am I evidencing his work in my life. Lord, we thank you for such rich promises that we can have full assurance and the peace and joy and fellowship that provides. Lord, may you be with us as we go now and may we have that joy which only you can give. We ask this in your son's name. Amen.